in this series on the great victories of the Bible, it's um, common for the victories that we read about to be associated with uh, military struggles. Here is a great victory in the Bible that had no military element to it at all. And uh, I think you'll find it exciting and relevant to your life as we study it today. So let's turn to uh, 1 Kings, starting in chapter 16 and verse 29 or 30, and we'll go from there. The story today is about Elijah, Elijah. Just a little background before we get into the story today and do some reading from the scripture. Um, There were six kings before King Ahab in Israel. Israel was the northern part of um, the nation that that divided at the time of uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And uh, when they divided, there was a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. And so this northern kingdom... Um, up until the time of Ahab had six kings. Every one of them was evil. Um, when a description was given of the king, um, it would say he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it started with the very first king, Jeroboam, who had been promised by God that if he would follow God, God would establish his throne and his kingdom forever, giving him... Um, like a, a, a similar promise that he had given to David. And so, uh, but Jeroboam squandered it. And because of fear, he set up uh, competing worship in his own nation and two golden calves that he identified as Yahweh and, and then established worship in high places and other evil things that were uh, totally against what God was uh, for. And so um, evil kings all the way up until the time of Ahab. And yet this is, the, um, this is the comment about Ahab. And let's begin reading in verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Wow. It was pretty bad before him. But for that to be said about Ahab, Uh, It gives us an idea of the kind of man that he was and the things that he was doing. Let's read about some of those things. Verse 31. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and those sins had to do with the redefinition of worship that God had established through Moses. And we read about those, um, those establishments of worship in the book of Exodus, Numbers, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Uh, Jeroboam disregarded all of that. He established his own system. He had his own temple. He had his own feasts. He had golden calves in Dan and Beersheba that were supposedly uh, representatives of God or a representation of God. And so those were the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. But Ahab also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Let's stop in this verse for just a minute. So, um, 
the people of, of Ahab's time uh, were, were polytheistic. They had many gods. And so uh, they would have gods to suit whatever need they might have. If they were um, agricultural in their business, uh, they would ha want to have a fertility god or a fertility goddess in the group of gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And uh, if, they were a, if their business was uh, sailing, they would want a sea god that would be part of their worship and so forth. They saw nothing wrong with having uh, many different gods, um, as many as they needed to cover the things that they were involved in in their lives. But that was totally opposed to what God stood for. And uh, with God, there is one God. There's only one God. And we are to worship him and him alone. And so uh, when Ahab began adding gods, it wasn't that he had forsaken God totally and wasn't worshiping him anymore. He was. He was just doing what other people of that area did. They had many gods. And God said uh, no to that. That aroused his anger. That was akin to uh, rejecting him totally. So this is the Ahab that enters our story um, through uh, the prophet Elijah. And God was, was angry with him. And because of his anger with Ahab, uh, there were some things that he had told Moses that he would do. Um, and Moses passed this on to the people of Israel. And I'd like you to to read Deuteronomy 28:15 right now. Moses is saying to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you to today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And, and then he lists several curses, a number of them, but one of them that he listed was this. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. What does that sound like? Sounds to me like drought. Sounds to me like famine. And that was the promise of God that if they failed him or if they forsook him, um, that he would bring drought on the land. Well, that seems to be exactly what God did in this case. And let's go to 1 Kings 17, verse 1. We don't have a lot of background into perhaps the dialogue that God had with Elijah before this particular verse. But um, from what Elijah says, we know that he's heard from God and that he is um, convinced in his heart and in his mind of what he needs to do. So let's read 17 verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So he marches into the king. We don't really know if he's known to him at this point. Um, possibly he was, but we don't know that. But he, he makes this statement that there's going to be a drought um, and it won't be withdrawn except by my word. And then he marches out. And he immediately goes out of circulation. He leaves um, probably Samaria. And uh, he goes to a place called the uh, Kirith Ravine. 
where there was a brook and God fed him through a raven morning and evening. That raven brought meat and bread to him and he ate that way until the brook dried up. And then God led him to another location. He led, led him to Zarephath uh, near the city of Sidon. And uh, there he, he uh, found a widow and uh, he, he lived with her and her son. And God provided for them in a miraculous way and um, performed a, an amazing miracle of raising the, the son from death after he had passed away. Elijah prayed and God raised him from the dead. But that's not our purpose to look at that part of his uh, ministry today, uh, although very interesting for reading on your own sometime. So after this period of time where he was first of all in the Kirith ravine and then in Zarephath living with this widow and her son, um, then God is, at, is on the move again. And I'd like you to read with me 1 Kings 18.1. After a long time, in the third year, and in the third year would be in the third year of the famine or of the drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So we have here um, God's intent. We know what God is up to, and Elijah knows what God is up to. Things are going to change. God brought the famine. He brought the drought because of the evil that was being uh, committed in the nation and particularly by the king leading the people into sin. And, and uh, God's bringing the drought wasn't so much punishment as it was an attempt to get their attention so that they would return to him. Uh, that's always God's intent in whatever uh, negative consequences he brings our way. Yes, they're painful. And I suppose you could view them as punishment, but ultimately they're meant to turn us back to God, to get us to repent and realize that we have sinned and come back to God and uh, trust in him once again. So Elijah uh, makes that announcement and uh, and says that, you know, go and present, or, or God, God tells Elijah, I'm sorry, uh, that he's to go into Ahab and, uh, and let him know that there's going to be rain. Well, Elijah connects with Ahab's right-hand man and, uh, named Obadiah. And Obadiah goes and gets Ahab, and Ahab comes, and, and as he's as he's about to engage in conversation with Elijah, these are the first words out of his mouth. And read with me, if you would, in verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Whew, what, a, what a way to, to speak about Elijah. And uh, uh, a little background, Obadiah made it clear in, in some of the things he said to Elijah earlier that um, Ahab had searched 
not only his own land, but other countries trying to find Elijah during this three-year period. And so um, Ahab had had it with Elijah because he knew that it was because of him, really because of God, although Ahab put the blame more on Elijah. And he said, and he believed that Elijah was the cause of the drought and the famine. So he says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And then he, he makes this, it's not a suggestion. He's, he's like in control. He's telling the king what to do. Now summon the people from all over, over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he's, he's uh, commanded the king to do this. And the king does it. He gathers the people and they, they gather on Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal are there. We don't hear about the 400 prophets of Asherah, but um, we we know that the 450 prophets of Baal are there. And Elijah goes before the people and he says this in verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? He's saying that to the people. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. See, in their mind, they're thinking, um, why can't we have more than one God? And, God, and Elijah's saying, no. If, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. One God. And the people said nothing. And so Elijah lays down this challenge. And he says this. Here's what we'll do. We'll set up two altars here on Mount Carmel. One altar for Baal and one altar for the Lord. And we'll, we'll get wood for both altars. And we'll get a bull for both altars. Each altar will have a bull to sacrifice on the altar. The only restriction that we will uh, lay down at the beginning is that there will be no one to light the fire. And so each each worshiping unit will plead with their God to light the fire. And the God that lights the fire from heaven will be the God that we serve. He is the one true God. And as he proposed that, I can, I can just hear the prophets of Baal or I can see them cringing because they know that that their God could never do anything like that, had never done it before, and certainly this would be a first time if he ever did. And so um, they're afraid, but the people said, yes, that sounds good. And so the challenge has been approved by the people, and they're off and running. And here's the way it proceeds. The first people to... Um, to set up the altar were the prophets of Baal. And there were 450 of them. And so uh, they began to, um, they set up their, their altar. 
they put the wood on the altar, they cut up their sacrifice and put it on the altar, and then they began to cry out to their God. And from early morning until noon, they're crying out to God. And then at noon, Elijah gets involved. And I love it. We talk about uh, humor in the Bible. Well, here's some humor in the Bible. At least it was uh, humorous to people that weren't worshiping Baal. At noon, Elisha began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. And so you get a picture of the frenzy that's going on in this um, among these 450 prophets of Baal. Can you imagine 450 men just um, screaming and, and shouting to, to their God and cutting themselves and blood is flowing and chanting? I don't know what, what kinds of things they would do in their worship, but um, nothing is happening. And this goes on until midday, until the Bible says at the time of the evening sacrifice, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon. And so at this point, Elijah sets up his altar and he does it in the way that Moses recommended it be done. He takes 12 stones, one representing uh, each of the tribes of Israel, and he builds an altar out of these 12 stones. And he gets the wood and he arranges it on the altar. And then he kills the sacrifice and cuts it up and puts it on the altar. And then he does something that the prophets of Baal obviously didn't do. And that is, he asked that four large jars of water be brought and poured over the sacrifice. Now, the, the measurements of the vessels is given in the scripture. And it was about three to four gallons of water per container. So with four containers, let's say there was roughly 16 gallons of water that were dumped on the sacrifice. And uh, Elijah had built a trench around the altar so the water would actually gather in the trench once it it flowed over the sacrifice and down the stones and then into that trench. And he said, that's not enough. Do it again. I don't know where they're getting this water because there's a famine. But they go get 16 more gallons of water. And they pour that over the sacrifice. And it's wetter than it was before. How can anything burn? How can the wood burn after this kind of dousing? And Elijah says, not enough. <clears throat> Go get another, another four. And so they brought four more jars and they doused the sacrifice again. <clears throat> then Elijah does something that's really significant. And I want you to read it. I want you to actually see the things that he said. At the time of sacrifice, three in the afternoon, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Notice What's happening here? He's praying. He's not in a frenzy. He's not cutting himself. He's not 
stand, he's not shouting. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And maybe he's speaking loud so the people can hear. But it's not so that God can hear because he knows God is in this prayer. He knows that God will answer this prayer. And that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. What happened after that prayer? You can read it. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. That shouldn't happen with normal fire. But this was not a normal fire. This was fire from God. And so this, the sacrifice was burned. The wood was burned that was soaked. The stones were burned. The soil was burned, and the water was licked up through this flame. This was the fire of God. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Can you see them on their faces, on their hands and knees and with their heads to the ground saying, the Lord, he is God. They had been convinced by this miracle. And how did it come? It came through what I would call by comparison to what the prophets of Baal had done, a simple prayer that took maybe a minute or two to speak compared to the hours of time they spent in crying out to their God, small g. What can God do in our lives if we pray? There's an important element here that I think we should consider before we move on. There's, there's more to the story, but the element is this. When, <clears throat> when something is God's plan, God answers the prayer. There's a, a New Testament passage in 1 John 5, I believe it's 13, where it says, or it's 14 and 15, that if, if, we, if we ask according to God's will, he hears us. And if he hears us in whatever he asks, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. So the important ingredient is that we pray according to his will. Elijah knew that God wanted to bring rain. And we knew that God was drawing people to himself. And so when he prayed, when Elijah prayed for fire to fall, this was God's will. It was, in, it was God's idea. Although the scripture doesn't specifically put it in those terms when you read it, at the way Elijah moved and, and uh, conducted himself, he was doing God's bidding. And so when you pray God's will, you can be sure that, that, that God will answer. <clears throat> we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Let's finish this story. 
And so <clears throat> the fire of God fell. The people fall prostrate. And immediately the, the prophets of Baal are seized and they're killed. And then Elijah uh, goes to prayer. The scripture says that on Mount Carmel, he put his head between his legs and he prayed six times. And he's praying for rain. Remember that the Lord told Elijah that, it was, that he was going to bring rain on the land. And so Elijah's praying for rain. And he prays once and he tells his servant, go look and see if you can see a cloud. His servant comes back and says, no. And he prays again and asks his servant to go and check. And he says, no. And he did that six times. And on, in none of those occasions did his servant see any sign of rain. On the seventh time, Elijah bowed his head between his legs and he prayed to God. And when he asked his servant to go and look, his servant came back with the report, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand on the horizon. And Elijah said, go tell King Ahab, he better get out of here because there's going to be a mighty rain. And so the servant went and told Ahab. And sure enough, what happened was that dark clouds began to develop and strong wind. And then eventually a very strong downpour of rain. And so God fulfilled his word that he had spoken to the prophet. And he said, I'm going to bring rain on the land. And he did. Again, just thinking about prayer because this is really a, a lot about prayer. Even though bringing rain on the land was God's will, Elijah prayed seven times for that to happen. Some people think that it's a lack of faith to pray for something more than one time. Uh, I'm not sure how they would explain this situation. Was Elijah just lacking in faith the first six times? Or was he persisting in something that he knew to be God's will? We need to be persistent in our prayers. When we know something is God's will, pray for it again and again and persist in prayer. You've got a, a loved one who needs to come to Christ. We know that's his will, that all men would come to know him. And uh, so we can pray that prayer over and over again and be persistent in our prayers. And we need to be. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a book. And uh, it's in our scripture in the New Testament. And in chapter 5, James spoke about some of the things that we have been talking about today. This great victory that was won through prayer. And he says this in the latter half of James 5:16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then let's read 17 and 18. Elijah was a human being even as we are. 
He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Now, we don't have a record of that prayer in, in the Old Testament, but we can believe that it happened. We do have a record of him praying um, on the other end and rain coming. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. We... we uh, we saw that prayer as he bowed his head seven times praying. And then finally that cloud came and developed into a mighty rainstorm. Well, this is a great victory. Not a single, um, there was no military element to it at all. And yet God was at work um, through his mighty power um, sending fire from heaven to burn up a sacrifice, um, bringing a famine on the land to turn people's hearts to him. And the combination of the famine and then the fire falling from heaven and then the rain coming, no doubt brought many people to faith in him. We need to pray. The the uh, brother of Jesus, James, in James chapter 5, he cited this example to encourage us as ordinary people to pray. He makes the point of saying that um, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He was just a common man. And yet when he prayed, the rain stopped. And when he prayed again, rain came. And he's making the point that you don't have to be a great saint to get results in your prayer. You just need to pray God's will and pray with faith. We learned this lesson uh, so strongly when we were young parents, my wife Carolyn and I, and we at that time had two children. We had a, a roughly a three-year-old daughter, maybe she was even a little younger, and um, a young son uh, who was a year and a half um, younger than she was. So he would have been a year and a half or a little over a year. And there was a night that in our, uh, when uh, our young son at that point uh, had a very high fever. His fever reached 104 and seemed to be climbing. And we were concerned. We had prayed and um, nothing had changed in his condition and it's the middle of the night, and so you don't call a doctor's office. Um, but what we, th we did was we got our daughter out of bed. She's three years old. And we asked her to come in and pray for Rich. And she came in, and she said three words. It makes me think of, of the comparative simplicity of Elijah's prayer to that of the prophets of Baal. She, she, she said, please, she said, Lord, heal rich. Three words, Lord, heal rich. And then she went to bed. We went over to his crib and we felt his head and immediately it was cool. We took his temperature and had dropped instantly. A three-word prayer by a three-year-old girl who knew no theology. She had heard some stories, but she, she was not a scholar. She was not skilled in praying for the sick. 
but she prayed a simple prayer and God heard from heaven and answered. And what is God calling you and me to? If nothing else, he's calling us to pray. We can pray for our families. We can pray for loved ones who are away from the Lord. We can pray for the sick. We can pray for our nation. We can pray for our church. We can pray for a pandemic. We can pray for big things because God is a great God. He's the God who answered from heaven with fire and burnt up not only a sacrifice, but a water-soaked sacrifice and an altar and water around the, the altar. He's a God who can stop rain and bring rain. And we just need to be people of prayer and pray big prayers. Pray prayers that are difficult. Pray prayers that are according to his will. Pray prayers in faith, believing that he can do it. And we too will be witness to some great victories. And we can tell our own stories as we've been able to do today about Elijah. Thank you for listening today. And I wanna just encourage you to uh, go on that path of prayer and make prayer a bigger part of your life than it has been before. Would you join me today in praying? Thank you, Lord, for this immense story today simple in so many ways and yet so profound. Help us to be uh, once again reminded of the importance of prayer and not just reminded but spurred on in our prayers to believe you for big things, to believe you for difficult things, to pray prayers when only God could make a difference, when only God could do could bring the answer to the prayer we're praying. May we pray those prayers and not be afraid. Thank you, Lord, for the examples of scripture. Thank you for this great victory today and the great victories that you will produce in our lives in the years and the days ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and have a great day.